Welcome to Smarter Market, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to the second season of Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Michelle Dennity, your co-host and fearless guide through the intersection of privacy, security, and digital technology this sophomore season. My guest this week is Caroline Wong, Chief Strategy Officer at Cobalt, a cybersecurity company that connects highly skilled hackers with organizations who need their software tested for security vulnerabilities. Caroline has worked tirelessly to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in the cybersecurity industry, is a member of the Forbes Technology Council, and recently won a gold award for Cybersecurity Strategist of the Year at the Cybersecurity Excellence Awards. Today, Caroline and I examine the question, who's responsible for protecting our digital assets of the future? And our interview is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Hello, and welcome back to Smarter Markets. I'm your host, Michelle Dennity. I am with a super, super exciting guest, a longtime friend, and a pioneer in so many ways, Caroline Wong. Caroline, welcome to Smarter Markets. Thank you. It is my sincere pleasure to be here with you today. I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation. So the first season of Smarter Markets covered a lot of ground of where the future physical markets and digital markets to support things like trading and banking and currency. We're going to go a little deeper into the data today. So Caroline, can you introduce yourself where you are now and give us a little bit of a highway of where you came from and how did you become the cybersecurity goddess that you are today? Well, thank you so much. So I'm Caroline Wong. I'm the chief strategy officer at Cobalt. We are a pen test as a service company. I started my career in information security more than 15 years ago, leading security teams at eBay and Zynga. These days, a lot of what I think about is cybersecurity strategy and specifically, what are the different roles that people, process, and technology play when it comes to securing the world's digital assets? Early in my career, I'll mention that I have had a fascination with security metrics. Um, And for me, it's really less about the numbers and more about the stories and the messages. Because practically speaking, every organization has to figure out a budget when they're talking about investing in things like data security. And if you put a dollar toward an information security program, That means you're not putting that same dollar into engineering or marketing or sales or something that 
might be a little more clearly understood by an executive. So I find myself fascinated by the conversations that security leaders have in order to ask for the resources that they need to do their job. And then the art of how they take sort of a risk profile and manage it. Uh, So that's me. I also, I have a podcast. It's called Humans of InfoSec. And I teach courses on LinkedIn Learning. Uh, Specifically, there is a Master the OWASP Top 10 course. There is a Cybersecurity at Work course. And in a couple months, I'm actually going to produce a new course, which is about security metrics. Exciting. And you also wrote a book about security metrics in the past. I did. I did. 2011 with McGraw-Hill. It is entitled Security Metrics, A Beginner's Guide. And when I look at that book today, uh, one of the things that's really fun for me is to open it and to realize that at the time, cloud security and application security were sort of emerging. And of course, today we find ourselves right in the middle of those things. Absolutely. So as I introduced, a pioneer to be sure. Now, Caroline, one of the things that I've heard you talk about quite a bit is how software and internet security is not a zero-sum game. Can you talk about what does that mean? What does that mean to the marketplace? And what does that mean to lead in the organization where you are currently and and for your clients who are looking at you to do pen testing as a service. And maybe talk a little bit about what is pen testing as a service? Yes. So first, I want to start by saying security is about protecting value. And in today's modern world, a lot of the things that we value are shifting from the physical realm to the digital realm. And so that's why cybersecurity is so important. Now, security practitioners used to have this story that they would tell about how to think about cybersecurity. The story says that if Robert and I are running away from a bear, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to run faster than Robert. And so the problem with this scenario is that There's an underlying assumption that I value myself and I don't value Robert. My success does not depend on Robert. And so as long as I get away from the bear, it doesn't matter to me if Robert becomes the bear's lunch. Of course, the problem with this analogy is that in reality, software companies and the digital value that's created by organizations don't exist in silos. We are not independent islands. I actually think that a more appropriate analogy for how things work in cybersecurity would be a three-legged race. Because in a three-legged race, my partner and I are dependent upon each other. In order to win, we have to work together in lockstep. And I really, truly think this is more of how it is today when it comes to security. And so every software company, including Cobalt is part of this tightly interwoven ecosystem of software companies that provide a variety of products and services. And each of those companies use software companies to help them do their work and so on. Michelle, I'll also respond to your question about what is pen testing. Pen testing is the action of trying to break something before someone bad does. 
And so what we do is we deploy teams of pen testers who go and look at software, try to break that software, figure out how it works so that they can go back and they can tell the software owner, I found a hole in your software. Here's how I will work with you to get that fixed before someone bad gets in. I think that's a really good way of sort of edging into the complexity that really is the marketplace for what is being secured. So what is being secured is no longer a castle with a moat. It's no longer outrunning you and Robert, outrunning the bear. And in sometimes I think we're chained to the bear himself in your three-legged race. And I guess a pen test could help me figure out is that a bear I want to be chained to or not? Or can I fix that bear and exchange him for Robert? Yeah. The pen test allows you to take a look at the quality of the knot that you have between your, you know, your leg and your partner's leg. But it also allows you to look and say, well, what's the path ahead and what's our plan for moving forward? So to speak to the complexity, I actually want to bring up Um, A funny thing that happened to me, this happened on January 4th, 2021. It happened to be my first day back from uh, winter vacation. And that morning, I woke up next to my five-year-old daughter on the bottom bunk of her bunk bed, because that's where I sleep a lot of the time. And I looked at my phone, and I had received a text message from a coworker. It turned out that Slack was down, and we actually had a six-hour or so outage, including a significant impact on these, like, precious hours. Our largest offices are in San Francisco and Berlin, and so that overlap was sort of exactly when Slack is down. Now, we use Slack both for internal company communication as well as for live pen tests that are going on, and so it was kind of a wake-up call on the first working day of the year to say, it turns out Slack's security is Cobalt's security. And at our company, we have something like 800 or so customers. We use something like 70 or so vendors. And I sort of think about it like a tree. The vendors that we rely on are the roots of the tree and the customers are like the branches. And so there is this way in which Our digital ecosystem is like a forest. We can't think about individual planters in pots anymore. That's simply not a realistic depiction for how these things work today. So the cybersecurity ecosystem, and that's that's what you're talking about. You're talking about an ecosystem where our businesses are entangled. We are really measuring each other by our best efforts and our worst weaknesses. And and so these kinds of terms don't sound like tooling or technical issues altogether. Can you address that a little bit of like, where is the challenge in the cybersecurity world? And, and is there a magic tool? Is there something we should be investing in that's the magic tool that will make the technology fix itself? Or, or is there something deeper? So I'll tell you what, in 15 plus years of working in cybersecurity, I have discovered the magic tool and it is, just kidding, there's no magic tool. Um, <laughs> the, the hardest problems to solve in security are not technical. I'll tell you a funny story. I am the LinkedIn learning instructor for the master, the OWASP top 10 learning path. So 
OWASP stands for Open Web Application Security Project and the OWASP Top 10. It's basically a list of very common security vulnerabilities that can be found in software. And so the first version of this OWASP Top 10, it came out in 2003. I happened to start my career in cybersecurity in 2005. I was the chief of staff to the global information and security team at eBay. And naturally, since eBay is an online marketplace that allows strangers to buy and sell from each other over the internet, web application security was of extremely high importance. The current version of the OWASP Top 10 was released in 2017. And the crazy thing about it is that there's been something like five iterations over the past 17 years, and yet the types of issues found in web applications is pretty much the same. It is literally the same stuff that the best and the brightest in the industry have been talking about for 17 years. And so I've often wondered to myself, why haven't these problems been fixed? Because we know how to find them, we know how to fix them, and we know how to prevent them. And I think it really comes down to people and process problems. I want to point to two, I think, illustrative examples. So one is the 2017 Equifax breach, in which more than 140 million people were affected. There is this widely accepted theory that the attackers were state-sponsored spies from China. The CEO stepped down three weeks after the breach became public. It cost $1.4 billion to clean up the mess. There was an FTC settlement. And so when we look at something like the Equifax breach and we ask the question, how did it happen? It was not because of a super sophisticated zero-day technical issue. It was because some software was found to be vulnerable, a patch was made available, and Equifax failed to deploy the patch. This was not a crazy technical problem that lacked a solution. In fact, the technical solution was available. There was a lack of people and process innovation. I want to also talk about SolarWinds, which is a little more recent. So, more recently, threat actors managed to plant malware in some monitoring software, which happened to be in use by many, many organizations. And when the news first broke, the breach was described as a highly sophisticated, targeted, and manual supply chain attack by an outside nation state, which of course sounds really intense, which it is. However, it also seems as though they may have used the password Solar Winds 123 to quote unquote protect the company's update server. In which case, it's no wonder malicious threat actors took advantage and planted some malware. If that's the case, it would be a simple security misconfiguration. What you're saying is so interesting because we can build more and more and more sophisticated products and tools. But if we don't get the humaning right, then the marketplace falls apart. And it's little places, it's points of ingress and egress, it's housekeeping and hygiene. So how do we keep up with this much complexity? This sounds almost overwhelming if there's nothing that we can do to build to make this better. Is this so complex that this is something we can't tackle? So... Cybersecurity does, in fact, have many different facets, and it can seem complicated, but I have come to the conclusion that it is not 
impossibly complex. I believe there are fundamentals that we as industry professionals can rely on, and we should not allow ourselves to get caught up in the myth that these problems are too overwhelming or too hard to solve. Back in 2005, when I was a new college grad and I started my first job as an information security engineer at eBay, I was handed a 50-page stack of information security policies. I was told that I was responsible for answering questions about it from technology teams and from the business, and this I found to be very overwhelming. I thought to myself, how could I learn all of this? How could I become the expert? It seems so complex. I found out after a few months that when I met with people who had questions about eBay's security policy, and then I wrote those questions down, went back to my manager, asked my manager about the questions, and then went back to the person to share with them my newly acquired answer, I found out that people were asking the same questions over and over again. And so throughout my career, I've been on two security teams. I've led a global product management team. I've done some consulting, and now I'm at a startup. And so this series of diverse experiences has helped me to see that cybersecurity is complicated, but that doesn't mean it's impossibly complex. So that being said, we have these frameworks, right? NIST 853 is nearly 500 pages long. PCI DSS is more than 130 pages long. The BSIM is more than 100 pages long. And the ASVS is more than 60 pages long. All that being said, I really think that the fundamental principles of cybersecurity can be boiled down to four basic building blocks. Number one is govern, aka know your assets. Number two is find security problems. Number three is fix security problems. And number four is prevent security problems. I truly believe that while it's not necessarily easy, it actually can be simple. So I really love a good framework. So I think you're absolutely right that it seems complicated, but it's not terribly complex. And so if you're investing in tools, technologies, methodologies, procedures, these four buckets are really how you look at investing. How do you look across your own portfolio and you think about the the govern and prevent and protect and then go back and you measure some more how do you go through those cycles and figure out how are you investing in in the calculus of people, process, and technology? So there is kind of an additional plane which runs, I think, parallel to these four that's really important for us to talk about, and that has to do with automated versus manual effort. So right now in cybersecurity land, there is a tremendous amount of emphasis on automation. And that storyline says, because we have a lot of cybersecurity problems and because we have a talent shortage, you should try to automate as much as possible so that you are less dependent on people. I happen to strongly disagree that automation can solve all of the world's cybersecurity problems. One of my colleagues did a B-sides presentation last year in which she presented research that says that there are entire classes of security vulnerabilities that can only be discovered by humans. So finding things like race conditions, business logic flaws, chained exploits, these types of things cannot be automated. 
And additionally, we need human creativity, human innovation, human judgment, human opinions, and human decisions to drive the right outcomes in this industry. So while there is undoubtedly more and more speed that which software is being developed and more and more overlap in the digital ecosystem, and while Certainly, cybersecurity teams are using automation to manage some of this incredible volume of work. I actually think solving the most important ones include both automation as well as manual effort. And I think it starts with manual effort. I think, for example, it starts with, okay, we need to govern. What are our assets? What are the valuable things that we care about? And how important is each one? And depending on the importance of each one, what sorts of security controls are we going to apply? And those controls may include both automated as well as manual testing, automated as well as manual remediation, and so forth. I I like this framework very much. And, and it actually leads to a bit of your bio that we sort of glossed over that I want to go back to. So your role is not only security. Let's talk about the other facets of your role and how maybe the human factor might have a have a role in all of this. Ah, uh, yes. This is super fun for me to talk about. So today at Cobalt, we have something like 170 team members. When I joined the company, we had 10. And when we got to be about 50, my boss, the CEO, Jacob Hansen, asked me if I would like to lead our people function. And the the funny thing about that is that I have never in my career held a human resources type of role. Um, I've always been a customer of human resources, if you will, and I've always been incredibly passionate about people and team building and performance evaluation and a lot of these different aspects of human resources, uh, but I've certainly never led a human resources team. Um, that being said, I said yes. I'm up for the challenge. Uh, I also have a phenomenal team that I work with. And our job is to recruit and onboard and integrate the individuals that are going to become the best add to the team. And we're doing that at extremely high velocity right now. And from my perspective, it's not sort of just about interviewing and recruiting and onboarding people there is a huge integrations piece that really matters. And the other piece that really matters, frankly, is offboarding. It's super important to identify when folks are not meeting expectations, when folks are not demonstrating organizational values, to work with those folks to see if we can either turn it around, or if not, then it's time to let that person go. And in this way, I really believe that if you can find outstanding people, if you can create the processes for these people to work together effectively as a team, then you're going to get a strong business outcome. And I am so pleased to see that Cobalt is on a really strong trajectory. And I think that our approach to culture, our approach to people has a lot to do with that. And there's a lot in that, you know, at a company that is just post series B, that's not even quite 200 people. We've got a 16 week parental leave policy, because we believe that 
people should be with their babies or their adopted children or, you know, whatever the case may be. We're very remote friendly. And at the same time, we make it a priority to bring the entire team together twice a year if we can under non-pandemic circumstances. And we really believe that the culture is a big force that may not necessarily be measurable, although certainly there are measurements such as employee net promoter score that you can utilize. But I do think that we have this saying, we say, you know, when we work together, we can make one plus one equal 10. And I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah, I like that. I mean, apart from the bad math, it's good juju. So (laughs) I think it's good. And I think it's really interesting to me, too, that your firm is obviously, you're a young company, you're in the cybersecurity business. And this goes along with, with something that I've heard you say through many organizations, as I've known you over the years, that, you know, protecting digital value, whether it's your company that does pen testing as a service, or if it's your customers who may be selling, you know, choo-choo trains, protecting the world's digital value is not something that any one cybersecurity professional or any one code developer can do. Talk a little bit more about how do we as a marketplace look at the things that you're doing. You're adding value by making sure your team members actually are ready for the challenge, that they're taking breaks when they need to for their families, that they're getting together when you can as a culture. How does that add into the value of this security marketplace? And whose job is it to really secure the digital assets of the future? So there is, in some places and in some times, a misconception that the person who is responsible for security is the security person. And I actually think it's not about a security guard. It's not about a padlock on the door. I actually consider cybersecurity to be much more like a dance, which sounds unusual. But what I mean by it is there's humans involved. There's a lot of humans involved. There's human behavior involved. There's the natural pieces of human behavior involved. And it is in these interactions. You know, security is not just the job of security professionals. It is not just the job of developers. It is not just the job of operations teams. It is all of these things coming together. You cannot take a software product and put a Band-Aid on it and call it secure. The only way a software product become secure is by a lot of different people choosing the right decision at the right time. And so it is something we try to put out there that we want to build a collaborative approach that brings people together. There is this notion in the information security industry of a talent shortage. You know, the story goes that there are so many jobs available to do in cybersecurity, that there's not nearly enough people to do it. I actually think that this is a fallacy. I actually think that the way that things work today, it is such that only the richest companies in the world can access strong technical security talent, and that we have a control and a distribution problem. I actually see only the richest organizations in the world being able to hire security teams or pay premium consultant fees 
and everyone else misses out. But I don't think it needs to be that way. I think that it's certainly possible. And in fact, what we're doing at Cobalt is we're establishing a marketplace with vetted security talent, and we're connecting that talent with organizations who need access to it in an on-demand, accessible sort of way. Yeah, it's really, it goes into the industrialization of this field. So compute used to be this super secret black box that happened in some giant refrigerated room. And what I'm hearing you say is the dance. And I think I love that metaphor. The dance is we're creating value and we have valuable information that we want to know, do, share, or trade. And so the reaction to that is if I need help that's specialized to make sure that I'm preserving the value of that data in this very digital world, I can use on-demand tools that will be my expert, that will help me to promote my overall business goals. Yeah, what we're doing is we're putting security humans in touch with organizations who need their help on demand. And, you know, I want to talk about a couple of trends that I've observed over the past decade or so. I'm curious to know what this looks like from your perspective as well, Michelle. One of them is it kind of felt to me like in 2005, no one really believed that security breaches were happening. And today, sort of thankfully, it's just all over the mainstream media. Everyone understands security breaches happen all the time. The other thing that I've really seen change is sort of this false belief 15 years ago that some security practitioners would have. And this goes back, Michelle, to the castle and moat analogy that you used. So there used to be a mindset that said, we can prevent security breaches, which I think is absurd. It's actually, but it was so well ingrained that I knew of colleagues who had this on their performance evaluations. And it was literally such that if there was no security incident that quarter, then that individual would get their bonus paid out. Now, today, I'm thrilled that the security industry seems to have a very different mindset, which is to say security incidents are happening all the time. And it's not so much our job to prevent them as it is to appropriately respond to them. I wonder if those what that looks like to you, Michelle, from a privacy perspective. Yeah, it's the flip side of the coin. And and I think there are some of the old guard in security that are becoming sort of security nihilists saying, oh, you just can't fix it. We're always doomed and, you know, pshaw, (laughs) the old guys. That used to be the major mindset in privacy, which is, you know, contextual sharing and amplification of personal stories. And now, because I think people recognize that security is very organic, it's very contextual, you are constantly, if you're running fast enough and hot enough, you will have patches that need to be stitched on. Hopefully, you'll pre-think and and prepare. But I think this has always been the mindset of privacy practitioners understanding that as long as I have another day on the planet, my story inevitably changes. And so my reaction to the proportionality of what I want to share, where I want to share it, how I want to share it, and then you put the overall global lens on this from a cultural perspective, I think it keeps our jobs very interesting and and I think a lot of fun because it is this dance of 
What do I want? What can I have? And how do I make sure that my feet are still healthy enough to dance again tomorrow? Yes. And I think you've nailed it with the word change, right? Our stories are changing. The software that we build is changing. The digital ecosystem is changing. What it is in this moment is different from what it is in this moment. And the word organic, I think, is also absolutely appropriate. You know, we're not talking about static things that don't ever change. We're talking about organic beings that change constantly. And how do you think about security and privacy for that? It, it requires both automation as well as human effort. A lot, I think, of human effort, focused human effort. I think that's right. And I, I actually, it's funny, I was having this conversation just earlier today that if you look at your human body from a cellular perspective, every seven years, organically and from a carbon-based perspective, you are a completely different being. Everything's been replaced every seven years or so. I find that to be so fascinating when I think about how long we thought you know, despite the economic rules of Gordon Moore, how, how long we thought that we could build somehow the fast enough, cheap enough, most powerful enough architectures that somehow we would solve information and solve security and solve privacy when in reality, like everything else, seven years from now and maybe even less, the very chips that are processing our conversations and our communications and our transactions are going to look very different than they do today. And we have to be prepared for that going forward. Absolutely. And I think there is both the phenomenon where my iPhone is not going to work very well in two years and I'll need to replace it with another iPhone and at the same time, I can take the data from the first iPhone, back it up, put it onto the second iPhone. The other thing is that any software, any website, any service that I use, it's actually going to be totally different tomorrow. It's going to be running on different servers in a different cloud. It's going to have a different code base. And yet there is, for the ones that last, something that stays. So I think that Perhaps what stays is the culture of the organization. Perhaps what stays is the spirit of the people who made these products and services and the imprints of their stories. Uh, we're getting a little philosophical here, but I think maybe that's the point, you know, but the bits and the bites and the cells and the organelles, you know, these all get replaced. But what stays and maybe that's, you know, what we all ought to be focusing on. I obviously share this perspective and I'll throw some futury stuff onto the table. So quantum is happening. Quantum will be here before we know it. How does that level of density and speed of compute change your outlook on what the world needs to build into the future of cybersecurity? So one of the things that to me is fascinating is IoT. So if you can have a million tiny drones, you know, and they're each powered by themselves and they can each behave somewhat autonomously, that type of complexity, I think, is very interesting. 
do you build in a software backdoor that says when you push the big red button, they all fall to the floor? You know, I think that quantum computing is going to be super interesting for cyber. I do think that on some mathematical level, today, our encryption algorithms are based on the fact that in order to break one of these codes, you need to do a lot of transactions. If you can do those transactions way faster, and if you're approaching being able to do them fast enough to matter in a human lifetime or a human day, then maybe encryption doesn't work so well anymore, uh, which is really interesting. You know, then we have to rely on different sorts of controls. You know, that being said, I think that speed and volume are only sort of two planes, you know, and that there are more to that. I think that no matter how fast computing gets, no matter how big storage gets, it's almost as though we humans, as the users of this technology, what we want and how we behave becomes sort of the the slowing time factor. You know, how long does it take a human to respond to something? You know, how long does it take a human to form an opinion or a judgment and to express that? These, I think, are going to continue to be very important regardless of how fast we can make things go and how much we can store. I think that is a fascinating and impactful answer. I've got one more question for you that's a bit of a softball given what I know of you. But the way that we're talking today is very interactive, people-centric. We've used some buzzwords from our respective communities, but it's also, I think, rather feminine in the way we approach in a horizontal view and a problem-solving view. What are your views about diversity in, in this space and where we've been and where we're going? So I think you're absolutely right, Michelle. I think there is undeniably a lot feminine about you and I interacting and communicating and dialoguing in this way that we've been doing. And it's incredibly beautiful. And I think that, no offense to people who are different than us, and I think every human has the ability to be as feminine or as masculine as possible, but there's something different. And I truly believe that in order to get the very best answers, you have to start with a lot of different possibilities. If I'm working with someone to try and come up with a solution to a problem, and this person and I grew up in the same neighborhood and went to the same school and ate the same food and took the same courses, we're probably going to come up with the same answer. And that answer might or might not be very good. You know, but if I'm working with five different people and we all have different life experiences and we all have different personalities and we see things differently, then maybe we end up having five different options on the table to choose from. And that, I think, is the magic and the power of diversity. But you can't just have people being different for the sake of being different. You have to have people who are different in a way that adds something to the culture And you have to have an environment 
where people are free to speak what's on their mind. You have to have an environment of psychological safety in order to allow all of the ideas to come to the surface so that the very best ones can be chosen and acted upon. I love that perspective and I share it. I think if I am looking at a company to invest in, I want to see that mind share. I don't care that much about the statistics necessarily, but what I care about is having the availability of those five additional and multiply that by the humans, those options that are available, the way that we dance the dance of privacy and security, the way that we value and create value from digital stories. That, I think, is the essence of a smarter market. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets featuring the wonderful, the charismatic, and the beautiful Caroline Wong, Chief Strategy Officer at Cobalt. Next week, Eric Townsend will be back to introduce my extraordinary co-host this season, Todd Buchholz. Todd is a world-renowned economist and has served as both White House Director of Economic Policy under George H.W. Bush and Managing Director of the acclaimed $15 billion Tiger Hedge Fund. He was awarded the Alan Young Teaching Prize by the Harvard University Department of Economics and is a regular commentator on the state of capital markets at Bloomberg, The New York Times, ABC News, and CBS. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. Your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABAX Technologies, I'm Michelle Dennedy. Please tune in again next week for another installment of Smarter Markets and an interview with Eric Townsend and Todd Buchholz. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.